0: support for father david abernethy and his ministry at the pittsburgh oratory of saint philip neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you the creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the Notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome to the Oratory Lecture Series. This is a a once-a-month group here for the Secular Oratory. So all those adults who come here to the Oratory, we try to offer a monthly lecture on theology, church history, scripture, liturgy, and spirituality. And so some some topic picked by one of the priests or the brothers here at the Oratory. And uh, I picked this evening a topic that seem fitting for the, the holy season of, of Lent, uh, repentance. And uh, and it certainly fits in well with some of the other groups that I'm doing here at, at, the, at the Oratory on St. John Climacus and from the Evergatinos, which are uh, great spiritual writings from the early church. Uh, but there's one focus here on repentance that I hope to communicate tonight. And if, we get, if that sort of registers and uh, we can hold on to that here tonight, I'd be pleased with it. And, uh, and so I'm going to jump right into the text. I typically will preface what I'm going to say, and then I find out that in my little introduction, I've said the same thing. So we're just gonna jump into my little introduction if you have the handout. Uh, it's in the red print italicized. And the title for the talk is Repentance, the Continual Effort of Life. St. Isaac the Syrian once wrote that for the spiritual struggler in this world, there is no Sabbath. So this should uh, sound familiar for those who have come to the other groups, because we've talked about this a lot before. In other words, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the struggle with the passions and temptations, there is no time for rest. And so he's not denying the validity of the Sabbath rest, but he's saying when it comes to spiritual warfare and struggling with the evil one himself or struggling with our own passions and temptations, that we have to be always vigilant. But there isn't a time where we take a, a kind of vacation from the the spiritual life and and so we always have to be vigilant our vigilance as christians our watchfulness of heart must be constant this includes repentance we must constantly be in a state of turning toward god calling out to him for his mercy and grace one of the unfortunate things today is that we've lost sight of this view of repentance. In large part, it is seen as an episodic reality, turning to God after committing grave sin or certain periods of time like Lent. So penitential seasons, Lent or Advent. These are good and important, of course, yet they do not speak of our desire and love for the heavenly bridegroom. An urgent longing as well as a humble recognition of our sin should create a constant movement of the heart. Ceaseless calling, ceaselessly calling out to God for his grace and mercy. This urgency also is rooted in the reality of our mortality and the brevity of our lives. St. Nilas of Sinai writes, always remain in a state of repentance, the foundation of our salvation, for we know not the day or the hour at which the Lord will come. So, as always, we see within the Desert Fathers and the early fathers of the church a deep rootedness within the sacred scripture. And some of these words mirror the words of Christ uh, within the Gospels. And we know that both Christ and John the Baptist, the first thing that they preached to the people was repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. That there was to be a turning toward God and away from one sin in order to receive what God was going to be bringing into the world and offering to the world in and through his son. And, uh, but in the introduction, I wanted to draw attention in particular to, I think, what we see happen in the West, that repentance does seem to get tied to particular falls in the spiritual life that we commit a sin perhaps and then go to confession or repent go to receive the sacrament in order to receive the grace and the healing of it. Or as I mentioned in the introduction, we have certain periods that are dedicated to repentance where we uh, take upon ourselves certain disciplines of the spiritual life, fasting, almsgiving, uh, deeper prayer, uh, engaging in vigils, things such as that. And there's a subtle problem with this because it can reduce repentance to an episodic reality rather than seeing it as a constant part of our day-to-day life. Something like our, our breathing, in fact, we are to be in this constant movement toward God. And so, all of our our spiritual activities, all of our prayer, all of our fasting, anything that we would do throughout the course of the day should be with this mindfulness of God and wanting to turn from the self, which can become focused internally and are on our own world, the satisfaction of our own desires and passions, rather than turning to God and seeking to do his will. And so, we want to look at, at repentance then as a kind of dynamic reality rather than static reality and not tied to a specific event or fall or period of time okay so this is the basic thrust of it and it's rooted uh, as i said here uh, also in this this sense of our own mortality that life in this world is very short and so we don't put off turning to god uh to another day that we are to be mindful of the fact that we aren't gu- guaranteed another day And so whenever we find ourselves struggling in the spiritual life, whenever we find a cooling of our desire for God, that in and through repentance, we are to seek to turn to him in that moment. We never want, as it were, to shelve the inspiration of the spirit that is calling us back to God. We always want to respond immediately to that call from God rather than thinking, well, tomorrow I'll do this, tomorrow I'll pray, or tomorrow I'll go to confession. Or tomorrow, I'll go to adoration. uh, That it becomes very important in the spiritual life to respond to those promptings of the Holy Spirit, always calling us to greater holiness and intimacy with God. Okay, so that's a little introduction here. And I want to just jump in the text. I will say that I did get this from an Eastern church. Uh, It's an anonymous writer, but it's from an Eastern church in Washington, D.C., And uh, one of the reasons I I picked it is because it does, as I said, tie with some of the readings that we're doing in the other groups, but also because it has this particular thrust on repentance being a continual effort. Okay. So the text itself. And for those who are on Zoom and for here in the group, we'll do a paragraph or so as always and then stop for comments or questions. Bishop Ignatius Briankaninoff left us the following precious instruction. In order to live spiritually and draw breath from grace, we must continually exhale, I'm sorry, we must continually exhale the ashes of sin. I thought this was one of the most beautiful uh, statements that I've heard on, on repentance itself. In order to live spiritually and draw breath from grace, we must continually exhale the ashes of sin. And the reason I like it is because it connects it to sort of this biological reality that like breathing, we should be engaging in this process of repentance, that we receive the grace of God. It consumes, if you will, our sin, and we breathe out the ashes. Uh, And so it's a beautiful image, I think, and uh, very much like what we want to foster in our day-to-day prayer life, that we move gradually from seeing Prayer is being done at various periods of our time or where we compartmentalize it uh, to seeing it as something like our own breathing. We really want to become prayer in, in the sense that we engage in it so deeply, so frequently, that we are always mindful of, the God, of God throughout the course of the day, whether we're engaged in conversations with each other or in a group like this or in our work. We, want, we always want to have this movement taking place deep within the heart. And this can take years of deepening our practice of prayer uh, so that it isn't something that we're just doing at various periods of the day, that we are fostering this constant remembrance of him. If you have come to the St. Theophan group, you'll remember him saying that the, our, our foothold in the spiritual life and growth in the spiritual life is precisely this constant remembrance of God, of trying to take what St. Paul said and praying unceasingly uh, as not just a, a hyperbole, but something that we are really seeking to foster within our life, that we would pray so much so frequently that the heart is formed by the grace of God on such a deep level that even when we are engaged on the surface level of work or discussion with each other, that the Holy Spirit is within us, and there is still this constant moving and crying out to God that is taking place. And so the fathers of the desert in particular they would use the, the short prayer, the Jesus prayer, which we've often talked about here, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would say it so frequently throughout the course of the day that they would say it as they were drifting off at night to sleep. And then the first thing in the morning, this would be the prayer that was on their lips. And they would say it throughout the course of the day as they were working. And, uh, and this is what we would want to, to foster as well. I think in the West in particular, we've gotten used to the idea of, you know, going to mass on Sundays, maybe dailies and Praying in the morning, maybe a little bit at night, but the idea of trying to maintain this constant intimacy with God, we often aren't taught that. Uh, I think this is one part of the spiritual tradition that maybe hasn't been passed on to us as deeply as it should be. It is in, in present in some forms, but the, the kind of prayer that's called discursive prayer, or non discursive prayer, I should say, that it isn't involving the, the use of images or ideas uh, that we say even take from scripture and we hold in our mind and we meditate upon. Non-discursive prayer is simply making use of a prayer like the Jesus prayer or even something briefer or a line from say the Psalms and allowing that simply to pull us toward God. And the reason it becomes so powerful is at times that we have a difficult uh, time praying that we might be sick, we might be in a a period of great distress in our life, upheaval, and the the Jesus prayer, or this kind of non-discursive prayer, almost pulls us along and carries us to where we need to be, can carry us toward God. In fact, the prayer can almost act like a stretcher that that carries us when we've been enfeebled, because uh, life is... Pressing down hard upon us, and we're in turmoil. Our our thoughts are are scattered, Our, our hearts feel chaotic and in distress. And when we take hold of this prayer, it almost seems as though it's ushering us to God. And at those moments, we know that sort of pulling our thoughts together in order to meditate upon something in particular, while that would be valuable at another time, would be very difficult in a moment of trial. And so our prayers become very short, as Christ did in the Passion itself. We see, uh, especially when he's undergoing the crucifixion, he's, he's praying there from the Psalms, but the, the prayer comes out from a very deep place and in these very short, pra- uh, very short phrases as he's calling out to the Father. And uh, the Desert Fathers in particular certainly uh, saw this in Christ himself, but also in certain images in the, the scriptures, the blind beggar on the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And if you remember, he keeps crying this out over and over again uh, until Jesus himself stops the crowd and tells him to come come to him. And so the Desert Fathers sort of pick up on this and they realize that it is this ceaseless but kind of insistent crying out to God that brings us to him very quickly, okay? But it's a beautiful image, and if there's one, I think, maybe to to memorize, I think uh, Bishop or St. Ignatius's phrase here would be a beautiful one. We sin almost constantly, Mm -hmm. if not in our deeds, then in our thoughts and feelings. Therefore, it is essential to continually cleanse our souls. In the language of asceticism teaching, which is teaching on religious struggle or the exercise of our faith, it is known as internal activity or attentiveness. To continually repent is to pay unceasing attention to one's spiritual life, to assess and to remove from it all that is questionable and foolish. St. Theophan the Recluse teaches us that one should do battle with sin at the moment it is born, that is, when it is only in one's thoughts. So here's, I think, was being put before us that might be different in terms of our understanding of repentance, but also of the spiritual battle itself that the, the father saw that the spiritual battle for us is primarily psychological, and typically it will begin in the thoughts. And so when we find a thought coming into mind that might be contrary to the will of God or that might stir up a passion or might lead us to have a negative thought towards another, that the place to begin the spiritual battle is right in that moment when we see the thought emerge in our minds. Uh, Where a passion is often stirred up, say like a passion of anger, is when we will linger with a thought like that. We will have a negative thought towards an individual, something like they did to us or said to us, we will ruminate on it throughout the course of the day, have imaginary conversations about what we will say to them in return. And gradually, uh, this then can become something that makes the passion of anger grow and become more and more heated with us until the point that it takes over our minds and our hearts. And so what Theophan and the other fathers are saying is that when we see that first thought emerge within it, within us, we want to act at that moment, take that thought captive and bring it before Christ or use the short prayer to set it aside. And tying this back to repentance, we begin to see then why this is so important, that repentance shouldn't be uh, simply when we've fallen into sin. Repentance is this kind of turning back toward God. So even when our thoughts pull us away from him and pull us towards the things of this world or in some way distract us from God, repentance is really this turning, which means to turn away from, to turn back, is this movement of the mind and the heart back toward God and so in the spiritual tradition you see the sense of repentance that it is this constant movement and it's tied in deeply to the rest of their spiritual uh, teachings and the rest of the spiritual tradition that all of our ascetical practices that for example that we embrace during Lent is meant to help foster this kind of unceasing repentance within the mind and the heart. Okay. This is true. Uh, ba- I'm sorry. This is true. Battle the invisible warfare, as it is called by the struggler Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. The spiritual battle requires ability, God's assistance, and constant prayer. As the holy fathers of the Church write, it is pointless to weep over the sins of the past if we do not struggle with them in the present. Continual repentance or attentiveness is that poverty of spirit of which Christ speaks in the first beatitude in his Sermon on the Mount. The call to such repentance is found throughout the word of God and in the text of worship. So again, we we see how closely the the fathers are tied uh, to the scriptures here. That uh, the first beatitude, in in fact, blessed are the, the poor and spirit, that this uh, acknowledgement of the poverty of our sin, or our vulnerability to our our sin, or the fact that uh, our our memory and imagination is often filled with things that will pull us away from God, necessitates this constant movement towards him, but also as we hear uh, uh, three things he lays out, Ability, God's assistance, constant prayer. So we're constantly praying to God. We are relying upon God's grace, but also we develop an ability, uh, an aptitude for the spiritual life, and that comes through the practice of various ascetical uh, practices uh, that we embrace, say, throughout the course of Lent, but we would continue on beyond Lent. So it really takes years to develop This facility in the spiritual life, in the practice of fasting, one doesn't become a great faster in the course of 40 days. The 40 days of Lent might reawaken within us the importance of controlling our bodily appetite for food, but it would be foolhardy for a person to say, I'm going to fast on bread and water for 40 days. All they're going to do is make themselves sick or irritable. Uh, or incapacitate themselves in one form or another in in terms of their ability to work. So Lent is really a period where a person would begin to develop this ability. And the same thing with prayer, that Lent is, again, a kind of springboard for us to revitalize and renew our, our longing for God and desire for him. And so we might commit ourselves in Lent to pray more frequently with the idea that after Lent, we are not going to stop that discipline and go back to what we did before, but that we're going to continue doing it in order that we might develop, as this reflection is putting before us, this continual repentance. And so this is why he says, you know, if we do not struggle, he says, if we weep over the sins of the past, it is pointless to do this if we do not struggle with them in the present. So if we're not you know, what good does it do us if we repent over the things that we've done in the past and mourn over those, if our response isn't then to develop that ability, if we do not become strugglers in the spiritual life, if we do not become ascetics. And so if we really develop a hatred for our sin, and if there is really a sorrow for our sin, then part of our response is not only going to be to seek God's forgiveness, And the grace of the sacrament but to take hold of that grace as it's given to us then and to engage in the spiritual battle to engage in asceticism so we're going to do everything then as we come out of the confessional to take hold of the grace so that we don't fall back into the the sin again and often I, i think we we have this feeling that sin has such a grip on us that You know, there's not much hope for us, that I've become so deeply immersed in a particular sinner. It's become so habitual that even though I'm going to confession, there's really no hope that I'm probably going to fall back into the same thing over and over again. But there should be this sense that we have coming out of the confessional that God gives us everything that we need in order not to commit that sin again. So the grace is there and given to us The part of the ascetical life. And part of the spiritual struggle and part of this continual repentance is allowing us then to engage in the spiritual practices that keep us from falling back into that sin. So if we just take hold of the grace and the forgiveness that comes to us through the sacrament and don't follow through with then continually struggling not to fall into that sin again, we are not really using the grace of God in the way that he would desire. And we know this theoretically. We, we know that part of confession is the commitment not to commit the sin again, that there's a firm purpose of amendment. But often that we, we think of that only in the mind, that I don't want to commit that sin again, but we rarely ask ourselves, what are, what are we going to do? But what is necessary for us to do not to fall? back into the game. What are some of the remedies that the father's put before us in order to strengthen us or help us to loosen the grip of that particular passion in order that we might grow in greater holiness but freedom too, that we might uh, be be able to live the kind of life uh, of sons and daughters of God? Any comments so far? Anthony? I have a couple of
2: comments.
1: Just a little louder, so it's picked up on the mic. Yeah, okay.
2: I have a couple of comments and questions. I was just under your first reflection, mm-hmm. you're saying that the struggle, that there's no time for rest. And that is true. But you know, one thing that has been useful to me in the past, and may work for others as well, is that when I feel completely overwhelmed and mm-hmm. just completely crushed, sometimes I have asked the Lord, Lord, please keep me at rest. Mm-hmm and somehow miraculously whatever situation i mean you know resolve itself at least for the moment right and god does give us a give us a resume
1: right so that's, yeah Th- that's a good point i mean uh, when isaac the syrian said this I, I think he realized that what you're <coughs> saying that in the spiritual life there is a need to relax and rest in God. And even in terms of our spiritual discipline, St. Bruno, the founder of the Carthusians, describes that in terms of that you can't keep the bow constantly taut or you ruin the bow. You have to relax it from, from time to time. And so the same is true for us. If we're constantly driving ourselves and not allowing ourselves to rest in God, then we can fatigue ourselves and uh, eventually become more vulnerable. I think the idea behind all of this though, is that we have to be constantly vigilant in the sense that we aren't allowing ourselves to entertain sin or as it were again, taking a vacation from God or from prayer. We certainly need our rest. And there are certain, certain times where we even need to relax our fasting so that we don't weaken the body too much. But in terms of this internal vigilance of the heart and the mind, I think this is what Isaac sees, that we we need to always be watching here, especially if the the sin typically begins with a thought, you know, that we have to be careful about what's going on in our mind. And I think in our day and age, we uh, have this sense that our minds need to be constantly uh, focused upon something or kept active, and we become very uncomfortable all of a when we have free time or when we're, we find ourselves in silence. And so we immediately we re- reach for the phone to pick it up, to check email or Facebook notifications, or we'll distract ourselves in one way or another. And again, the spiritual tradition sees this as something foreign, that if, if temptation comes to us through thoughts, then we, we really want to move from multiplicity of thought to simplicity not constantly be going in the opposite direction which is what we see in our own day is from simplicity to a kind of complexity and multiplicity that we're constantly in this state of receptivity and more and more all the time all of our senses are bringing in information I mean you can't go for a walk around the block without hearing the screaming of one of those leaf blowers uh and uh and similarly though, I think we expose ourselves to that constant stimulation, TV, music, whatever it might be, we have less and less downtime and silent time in our, our day-to-day life. And part of that is cultural too. I think, especially in the West, work is seen as this particular virtue of driving oneself harder and harder. And so we, we look, we get so fatigued in mind and body that we look for ways to escape rather than to look for ways that we might be comforted and strengthened by God. And so we've talked about this in some other groups, you know, that we will zone out through watching television or videos or just surfing the internet. But the the problem with that is that we aren't focusing upon God. In fact, God could slip out to the, the, the furthest margins of our mind for the longest period of time. It's surprising. I think if we stop ourselves even... If we observe ourselves even on a given day and where our thoughts go and how attentive to we are to God, we might realize that there are hours upon hours that we don't give a thought to God at all. That we're so absorbed in the things that are important to us and that have value to us, and they might have real value, but we're doing that outside of the context of our relationship with God and asking him for his strength and guidance. And so we're so focused upon it that we're making it in that moment an end in itself, removed from God. And I think in previous cultures, different kinds of work made it easier, I think, uh, in some sense, to be mindful of God, especially when the work was with the hands and uh, an agrarian you know, culture where you're in the fields and there might be a lot of natural silences that were good during the day. In fact, the monks... Would gravitate to that kind of work that would allow them to pray unceasingly and I think in our day it's become very hard because a lot of our work involves engaging other people directly or engaging something like a computer and so we have to be conscious of fostering I think not only this continual effort of repentance but of being mindful of the kinds of thoughts that we have and the things that we're allowing ourselves to be exposed to. And, you know, memory and imagination take hold of things in such a deep way that once we expose ourselves to something, even if we're not conscious of it, it's still within the memory and can surface at any time when it's stimulated by thoughts or particular temptations. And so that's why we can't take it lightly. The depth of prayer that's needed and the purity of heart uh, achieved is so great Then to purify that even which is in the unconscious or in the deepest parts of one's memory. But your point's well taken. And I think e- even in the spiritual life, we could be straining, uh, but straining in a way that's unhealthy. And so relaxing that at times is good. You remember that little quote from the modern elder he said, when everything becomes confused and chaotic and you're, you're struggling and you seem to be overcome, he says, stop and have a cup of tea. And, and it's sort of a homey uh, kind of counsel, but it, it's actually a good idea. You know, just slow things down for a moment. Stop straining. Allow yourself to sit in the presence of God and do something that relaxes the mind and the body. Okay, and that takes us back to your point. Go ahead. I I, I, have a follow up. Okay, sure.
2: Uh, Here it says that to continually repent, pay unceasing attention to one's spiritual life to assess and be all that is questionable and foolish, which I think is great and true. Mm -hmm. But as as someone who has struggled with scrupulosity in the past, that actually, you know, I just wanted to make the point that that actually. This hyper attention to one's sin can actually cause the greatest damage to soul
1: that's so With yes, scrupulosity. Yes, that, that that's right. That's right. Uh, there is sometimes an, uh, an obsessive focus upon thoughts and whether or not they're sinful, and I think this is why we don't, you know, take make the spiritual journey on our own. And uh, whether it's through a confessor or spiritual director, we would want to be able to, to look at what's going on in the mind and the heart, and especially someone who struggles with scrupulosity, they would want to go to, I think, to the same confessor over and over again uh, in order that that confessor might come to know them very well and the nature of their struggle in order to help them clarify for themselves what is serious, what, what isn't or what they've already confessed in the past and that their what is really happening is that they're ruminating or perseverating, they're going back to it over and over again and to help them move away from that, to give them the tools to move away from that, to help them trust more in the grace of God. Uh, But even I found something like the, the Jesus prayer to be very helpful in moments like that because one is taking hold of a prayer And allowing that just to draw one forward and out of those again those thoughts that are more of a scrupulous nature, you know to gently set those aside and let yourself be drawn specifically to Christ. And I think for all this that we're talking about we want to see it within a relational context we aren't in engaging or thinking about any of these things abstracted from our relationship with Christ. Because when we do that, then all kinds of distortions can come in or anxiety, fear, or that we can then end up taking the wrong path, lose sight of the mercy and the love of God. Right. Yes.
0: I just said that, when you said that, you know, the other half of that sentence probably in action isn't so much of a of a thing we do that because like to what extent are we really capable of removing what is questionable or foolish from our own life like it's almost more inviting in what is capable of pushing out what ought to be there um sort of uh yeah because like our own muscling it out really isn't going to push the other things in, which is exactly why something like the Jesus prayers of valuable as it is
1: because you're right so you guys are reading from my introduction still yeah. oh, okay that's from the text yeah. <laughs> forget my introduction This is like yeah this is the first page of the
0: okay um but yeah it's probably like that part isn't so much our own effort yeah that's
1: right and I think that's why he moves very quickly to emphasize not only our, our ability in our unceasing prayer but uh, how's he put it here? God's assistance. So the relying upon God's grace, that this, this would be the main thing that takes place, especially even in, in the terms of movement of repentance, that the what allows us to make that initial movement toward God is grace. In fact, we might say all is grace in that regard, that God, you know, gives us the grace in order to trust enough in his mercy to turn towards him, even in the smallest amount and that brings upon us a flood of mercy but nonetheless this is that repentance would be sort of the first step for us okay Well, we move on to the text and see what unfolds here in a sense all the teaching of the church is a single call to repentance in the most profound sense of that term that is it is a call to rebirth to a complete reassessment of all values to a new understanding and vision of the light of of Christ. So this is a great paragraph that all of the church, all the teaching of the church is a single call to repentance because the the call of the gospel or simply Christ coming into this world, God revealing himself in the way that he does radically changes the way that we view uh, who God is, who we are as human beings and reality itself. And so there's there's something revolutionary that has taken place. And we never want to get to a position where we're, we're sort of, uh, that life goes on as usual. You know, that Christianity or our faith is sort of part of that, but not really shaping it and affecting it in any way. But uh, what what this paragraph is saying here, and what the author is saying, is that uh all of christianity is revolutionary and calls us to repent to turn to god in a radical way to re-envision our life uh in a way that we could never imagine prior to the incarnation that because of what christ has done on the cross because of what we've been given in the sacraments but our, our baptism what we receive in the holy eucharist what we receive through the confessional Our life is radically changed and we we've moved from something even beyond that original innocence of Adam and Eve. uh, Through what Christ has done to participate in the life of the most holy trinity and not in some distant future, but this is the reality in which we are to live now. And we are to understand what God has called us to. And this should be reflected in the way that we engage each other. People should be able to see something within us that this kind of interior revolution and exterior revolution in the way that we live our life has taken place. We should not fit in to the world around us. And I've said this in previous groups that Christians should be identifiable as they were in the early years. You know, see how they love each other. There was something extraordinarily different about how Christians viewed themselves, others, and even those who were their enemies, even those who were persecuting them. And we've worked so hard, especially in, I think, the culture here in the US, to sort of integrate ourselves into the culture to fit in, almost to become invisible or to prove somehow that our Christianity doesn't affect the way that we engage in the world around us, so we could do everything that everybody else is doing. Well, I don't know, if we look at our lives through the lens of the gospel, how would that even be possible to look at all the things in this world that we are exposed to and sometimes expose ourselves freely to? you know, I, I think it really does, w- w- what the writer is saying here, is that if we we're living this continual repentance, w- there should be an uneasiness that we experience with a whole host of things. And there should be a daily reflection as to whether or not how we are living is consistent with the gospel or if it's pleasing to God. I think I've mentioned before, this was Christians had been referred to as a peculiar people. And that's one of the things that we desperately try to avoid is being seen as peculiar or odd uh, in our society because it sort of pushes you out to the margins. And I'm not saying that you should go out and act like a goofball and make yourself, you know, annoying to everybody. But I think there should be something, you know, about, and not even what we say, just in the way that we live, even sort of the more positive elements, joyfulness, the radical peace of living in Christ, that these things should all be very tangible to those around us, that our hope is so firmly set in God and in his promises that we engage in our day-to-day life, even the very difficult things, with a kind of interior peace that should be tangible to others. It was not coincidentally that St. John the Baptist often repeated the words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Christ began his sermon with the same words. According to the venerable St. Ephraim the Syrian, repentance is a field to be cultivated at all times. Repentance is the tree of life, resurrecting those in sin. Elsewhere, he states, through repentance, earth has become heaven, for it has become filled with saints. Beautiful. Saint Ephraim uh, lived prior to Saint Isaac the Syrian but there is this period among Syrian Christianity that gave rise to some really you know holy souls but beautiful writers Ephraim the Syrian being uh, chief among them Uh, but especially in his writing on repentance there's a little work called the spiritual psalter Uh, if you want something that's incredibly nourishing uh, to read and it's it's 150 reflections sort of coinciding with the 150 psalms that's why it's called the spiritual psalter but often they have this theme of repentance of turning toward God and so he uh, Ephraim would really be the one who articulates this most beautifully and most fully and to say it as he did did here in the last line earth becomes heaven for it becomes filled with saints that in our turning to god then this heavenly reality the the divine life comes into this world that the world becomes is embodied now with with saints saintly figures and so it's we can't be pushing again our own conversion or life in christ off to some distant future but see that we, we are called to live this godly life, this divine life now and that it's made possible for us in and through the gift of the spirit and, and through the sacramental life. But it's it's not automatic and it's not something that just spontaneously comes into being that there is a struggle. there is a human element. there's a kind of synergy that takes place here. God gives us his grace, And yet the the human element is our willingness to take that up and embrace it as fully as we can. In the past, we've talked about living from Eucharist to Eucharist, that we enter into this radical intimacy with God, this communion with the heavenly bridegroom. We receive the grace, the life that it gives us, and we embrace it as fully as we can in order to be conformed to Christ, that we put on his mind and we engage the reality in our life as Christ you know, filled with his love, but also guided by his own spirit. And then we receive the strength of that Eucharist again as we, uh, as we re- receive Holy Communion once more. And I don't think we're often uh, formed in this way uh, too often in the West. You know, how many of us are educated and told your, your life exists between Eucharist to Eucharist? It is formed and shaped by this reality, most of all. This should be the lens, again, through which you are are viewing your day-to-day life. And if you aren't, then this kind of repentance is needed. So it's repentance that really sharpens our vision about our identity as sons and daughters of God and how we're to be living our life. In his book, A Priest Observations, Uh, Sometimes the title of it is uh, The Journal of a a Russian Priest. uh, Father Alexander Alkaninov, an experienced spiritual director, writes, Without our constant control over the spirit, confession, which takes place occasionally, is not successful. The eye of the spirit conscience demands exercise, and without it you will see neither yourself nor your sins. According to the Venerable St. Isaac of Syria, he who has been able to see himself has accomplished more than the one who has seen angels. He also wrote, one who apprehends his sin is better than the one who through his prayer raises the dead. And so we see something coming into focus again here with another of the Syrian writers, that this capacity to, to see where we need to be healed. Uh, certainly to see it within ourselves first. And then if those experienced spiritual guides can help others see it. But to see it within ourselves, those places where, where we've been wounded by our sin is a greater gift. This gift to discern where we need the grace of God, where we need the healing, and where we need to grow in our, our Christian life is the most important thing for us because this allows repentance to take place but also, as he says here, the, to exercise our faith, to strengthen our conscience, to sensitize the conscience so that it can sort of recognize those thoughts, ideas, actions that would be contrary to God. Andrea, it looks like you have a thought. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I didn't
0: have the courage to bring it up. That's okay. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, one more person. One who apprehends his sin is better than one who through his prayers raises the dead. I have to say that, you know, I've been given the gift of apprehending my sin, which, you know, it's, uh, I, mean, I don't mean to be sarcastic or, uh, in any way, but uh, I'm I'm sure I don't deal with it well. I find it to be rather curse. Um, I, uh, I know what I did wrong, I know what I did wrong. You know, but yeah, that not But I find that you know that has not led to to sanctity of life in me, or well, I mean, yeah, in a way, because of course I don't get a feeling for time But um, like, it has not. There's been no increase in peace, no no really godly fruit from that. There's just been more sorrow and more worry. So, and I know that I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it's all true. You know, what I see in myself is true. But it has not been a fountain of life-giving water. It's actually been something that's been, in a way, destructive. Hmm. So I
1: don't know. Well, maybe at the moment. But I think the fruit of that is actually peace and joy. I think when we first enter into the spiritual life, And we begin to see the ways that we struggle, the passions that have really taken hold of us over the course of time, or even our day-to-day behaviors, you know, that, that would be contrary to charity. When we first begin to become attentive to those and we pray and those things sort of stand out for us and we see them and we have to begin to struggle with them. And so often the very beginning of the spiritual life can be painful, it's not so much consoling as it is revealing to us the woundedness of our sin, our poverty, poverty of spirit. Uh, But what, what this vision of our own sin, our own poverty brings to us is this repentance that allows us to reach out to God for his mercy and for his healing. And so ultimately as our trust in God grows, and as we become more comfortable being vulnerable before him, where we don't feel that we're going to get the smack down, but rather we're going to be lifted up and healed, then that movement from the acknowledgement of our sin toward God is ultimately going to give way to joy. If you remember, we had talked in some of the other groups about how the fathers looked at compunction, you know, this sorrow for one's sin, that the word actually means sorrowful joy, that they never saw compunction sorrow for one's sin outside of this context of the movement toward God and the restoration of that intimacy with, with him. And so if we are lacking that joy, that knowledge of our sin could simply lead us to spiral down into a very dark place, a kind of spiritual depression. Uh, Often they would call it despondency. And so sometimes early, in the spiritual life or as we're or in various times when we're struggling with certain things or we're struggling trusting in God and there might be a whole host of reasons why that might be true in one's life uh that that relationship has to grow and develop over the course of time we're opening our hearts to him or revealing those things to him uh, does not cause us simply that that pain but again gives we find hope in the midst of it even in the difficult things, that to acknowledge the truth about them is to acknowledge he who is truth. So the moment that we see the truth, even about what is maybe embarrassing to us, shaming to us is to embrace he who is truth. For us, truth is a person. So we can acknowledge all those things freely and without fear, because we know the moment that we do that, even in the smallest way, draws us to him. If you remember, you've come to some of the Evergatinos groups that we've been reading. Evergatinos is a collection of writings of the early fathers from the fourth to the seventh century. And all the first hypotheses, the first 10 hypotheses in the book, uh, all have to do with repentance. And it's sort of surprising because uh, the emphasis of the fathers is even the slightest movement toward God brings this flood of mercy And healing and restoration of that relationship. And so say if a person left the monastery and they sort of like the story in the the gospel this weekend, the prodigal son, you know, who leaves home. So if a person leaves the monastery, embraces a dissolute lifestyle, turns away from God in a radical way, uh, but yet at a later time comes to their senses or sees the, the poverty of that and turns toward God, the moment that there is even that slightest turn, or even if the motive for it isn't perfect or impure, we know this in the story of the prodigal son, that he begins to recite that little story that he's going to tell his father. Oh, father, I've sinned against you and God. You know, take me back as one of your servants so that he could eat. Basically, he was starving to death. And the father doesn't care at all about that. Rather, what he cares about is having his son back. And so the fathers say that, even if a person turns to God in that moment and there's one story after another in this in these books about they're turning to God and then the stories often and but before they got back to the monastery they died and the reason that the stories emphasize this truth is the power of repentance It doesn't depend upon our actions or even the specific changes in our life. It's really a matter of the heart and a matter of love, of turning back to God, trusting in him and his mercy. And immediately this brings a flood of grace. And God, it's like the story of the prodigal son where he runs out, throws his arms around the neck of his son and kisses him. The father is actually the one who's ever vigilant looking for his son out in the horizon and first sees him and runs out to him. And so often, I think, in the spiritual life, it can be very hard for us to see God in that way. When we sin, I think sometimes we we are deflated in terms of self-esteem, or we feel terrible guilt or shame about it. And we, we look at ourselves harshly, but we aren't necessarily looking at ourselves in the way that God views us. That Jesus himself says in the gospel, when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. In fact, at one point he says, all the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And this is an extraordinary thing to say. You know, this simple turning of a person back to God brings God this intense joy. We're reading St. John Climacus, who was also one of the great early writers in the church. And he said, if we sin every single day and yet we repent and turn back to God, our guardian angel looks upon us with joy because we're doing the one thing that the demons can't do, which is to turn away from that sin in humility and turn back to God. And so John says, if if pride can make demons out of angels, then humility can make angels out of demons. So if we have humility, it raises us up out of that state of demons who are acting in a way contrary to God to elevate us to becoming angel-like. So it's humility and repentance that's tied to us that is the foundation and the great hope of the spiritual life. But sometimes we'll, even in our own minds, twist repentance to turn it into something very difficult, that God is up there waiting you know, to give us a good cuffing you know, to smack us across the ears, you know, for having sinned rather than looking upon us with a pity born of love and the desire to receive us back. And I think that's why many people will come to confession with kind of fear and trembling. Uh, Not so much because of the sense of their own sin, but really more out of this sense of, you know, the, the anger of God, rather than that being a moment of intimacy with God. Yes.
0: I don't know if you probably know Father Michael Ruffalo of the Shrine Group.
1: Uh, I'm familiar with the name, but I don't know the person.
0: He specifically addressed this topic <laughs> in such a wonderful way that so resonated with me. And a friend of mine today happened to bring, bring it up. <laughs> um, the teaching of Father Rippinger, Yes, actually, well, I don't I've heard of him, him. She mentioned him, and she actually reiterated what Father Ruffalo mm-hmm. has said through him. And it's about the fact that each and every one of us have one particular, one major sin, one major weakness with which we struggle. Every single one of us, and that we must—it's very powerful and necessary to identify that. Mm-hmm. And that our mother of sorrows is the one who helps us do that. She really does. And that once we identify that, what that is in our lives for each one of us, and it's different for each one of us, we do everything we possibly can within our power, within our lives to unroot it. But the truth of the matter is we don't have the power, only God has the power to do that. And that's the poverty of spirit that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it's just so beautiful to turn to Our Lady and have her reveal that to us and then for God to give us the grace to desire to renew.
1: Right. Yeah, actually, that comes up in the text here in another couple oh, really? paragraphs. I did read it. Yeah, that this was sort of a constant teaching of the fathers that we would seek to identify the, the passion or the sin that afflicts us the most and that this is what we would seek the healing for. All right. So let's move on a little bit here. Saints Ephraim and Isaac, the other spiritual struggles after piety, all, all, all recommend that in doing battle with sin, it is best to begin with <laughs> with the sin which is most which most grievously attacks us. This is what we were just talking about. Uh, this is why we should just read through the text. I, just, I always feel like I do this, like I go into this long explanation in the next sentence we, we discuss it. To the extent that we are rid of it, our conscience will see all the more. Moreover, it always behooves Christians to do battle against those sins, which directly oppose love. The Holy Fathers of the church teach that the hatred, enmity, and condemnation utterly seal shut the gates of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love. Thus, the first condition of true repentance is reconciliation with everyone. That is why in the Lord's Prayer, the Christ included the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is why in the Eastern rites of the church, they began the great Lent with Forgiveness Sunday, when believers ask forgiveness of one another for personal insults and offenses, so that with a clear conscience, they might begin Lent, their invisible warfare. The church teaches that true love is indivisible, And that dislike for a single person will ultimately poison all love. Theophan the recluse writes, and one who is at odds with anyone else, all friendship is fragile and easily turns into enmity. Of course, by bearing enmity, one cannot really love God. God is complete love and tolerates nothing that is opposed to love. So the very nature of God is love and so when we are thinking about repentance and when we're thinking about our relationships with one another we can't think of it outside of that context that this is the reality that christ has made it possible for us to enter into the very life of the holy trinity this relationship of love this communion of love and so when we think about our own spiritual life we identify our most serious of sins but most of all we identify those periods where there's a breakdown of love. And I love this tradition that we see in the Eastern rites, that at the beginning of Lent, they celebrate this forgiveness Sunday. In fact, they will do it within the context of the liturgy itself, as well as outside of it, of asking forgiveness of those that you turn to the person next to you and you ask them forgiveness for any way that that you've sinned against them or acted against them in a, a sinful way or a hostile way and with other people in your family as well so that you can enter into lent with this already with this kind of clear conscience that at least you've acknowledged the way that you've fallen short of love in your relationships with others and seek to reconcile at least on on that level and we hear something similar in the gospel even in regards to celebrating the holy eucharist that if you You come to the altar and remember there that you have something against your brother or against you, then you leave your gift, you go and be reconciled and then come back and offer your gift to God. And so in a very concrete way, the Eastern rites uh, incorporate this into their experience of Lent. We do it uh, as a part of our liturgy with the penitential rite too, but sometimes familiarity uh, with something makes it lose its impact for us, that we do it over and over again as part of our, our mass. We, you know, we will say the confiteor, we'll sing the Kyrie, but sometimes at that point, we aren't reflecting very deeply about the, the concrete realities behind that, uh, that go beyond simply our own personal sins or struggle with our own personal passions to the ways that relationships have broken down. And so it's, I think, an important thing for us to recapture this. Again, Anthony.
2: Yes, I was just thinking that uh, something that maybe needs to be emphasized in our times is that there seems to be an epidemic of this broken relationship itself. You know, like people come from both broken backgrounds, broken families, and, you know, the main person that they don't like or hate is themselves, and as Christ all this, you know, the, you know, love others as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Loving yourself is the first condition before you love others. Mm-hmm. So like all of these things that we're talking here are, are good, but you know, like, it, for many, I think that foundation of self-love is missing. So like, you know, when he says here, you know, about, uh, that hatred, enmity, and combination that we see as the case of the kingdom of God, you know, the first start is that self. Self hatred, self envy, self condemnation need to go before they can even go with somebody else. Like that comes at a major stage, you know. Before you know that that relationship itself needs to
1: be healed. Right. Right. Yeah. Epidemic. I think is uh, a good word. You know that there is a breakdown in the culture in so many ways, and uh, and and in the fundamental way of breakdown in family. There's you know, often great abuse that's been experienced, whether it's verbal or physical. Uh, and uh, and so often the approach to God can be very difficult. You know, certainly over the course of years, I've known people that have hated God even for creating them, creating them because of the circumstances that they experienced in their life and uh, or the confusion that they experienced internally. And so you're right. I think it takes someone who's really lived the spiritual life because it can be attentive to those things to offer the kind of spiritual counsel that's necessary that brings about that deep healing. Sometimes that trust in God has to be restored or a person has to begin to develop that capacity to see themselves as loved. And the spiritual counsel should be reflective of that. And uh, again, in our group on Monday, we were talking about the importance of uh, seeking out spiritual elders, not walking the path alone. And it's described as the need for a physician. And even in our discussion of that, and in the discussion of the texts, we see that sometimes you need your PCP, who can sort of, you know, deal with the general things that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis, but other times you need a surgeon, you know, one who could go and can see things with a, a great clarity and be able to do the deeper work that helps to remove the thing that's causing the greater pain. And sometimes those things are aren't seen very easily, even by the individual. They know the pain or the symptom of it, but don't necessarily know the source of it. And so, as as a priest, you know, I've what is it now? 28, 28 years, and uh, it's hard to believe. I feel like an old man every time I I say it. But uh, mm-hmm. I've seen over the course of those twenty eight years uh, that shift that you're talking about that it has become sort of epidemic. That uh, what people struggle with, even coming for spiritual direction. Uh, is often very difficult and painful that makes it hard to believe in a loving God. And certainly, I think when we look around our world, and even in our own day, the the depth of the violence man's inhumanity to man, the things that we are capable of doing as human beings, agitates people on to the very depths. You know, what is life in this world about? How can all this evil be present? Where's God, you know, is a common question. I think we would have to be pr- pretty spiritually stunted not to be asking that question, not to be agitated by it, but you're right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in one of the, these writings on, in our Monday group said that oftentimes a, someone who does not have this ability to see those things can do more harm spiritually to another than good. And so the ability not only to see the sin or where there needs to be healing there, but also where there are wounds on multiple levels of what it is to be a human being, that a person has to be attuned to that. And be able to address it or help the person find a means of addressing it. So it's a good question, because I think as priests, there's nothing that when I look back at seminary, there's nothing you know, that prepares you for what you experience within the world. Two weeks in the confessional changes your perspective on things pretty quickly. You know, in terms of the reality of people's experience, both in terms of people's sanctity, the depth of of the holiness, their their love for God, but also I think the the deep woundedness that people often experience as well. And so if your seminary training was all up here and very little here, you're going to be ill-prepared. So that's why you know there's always that temptation to turn, you know, to alcohol or other distractions because it can be anxiety-producing for the priest. You have to be deeply immersed in everything that is being said here. The f- priest, most of all, you know, he can't be calling others to this constant repentance unless he's living in it in a complete way. You know, we aren't meant to be managers administrators you know fundraisers you know I think the responsibility of ordination is to be to offer care of souls primarily through the, the, the sacraments but to you know through this immersion in the spiritual life where you know that can be done and a positive, and positive so revamp the whole seminary training we need to go back to simply living with holy people. I think that's where you learn the most. Yes.
2: But, um, uh, I was just thinking uh, perhaps from the person who speaks, how much of repentance do we need the help of the Lord one to identify things? So many times we found out nowadays doing things just because everyone else do it, right. they is doing not thinking are that right? Mm-hmm. so and the second thing is actually how much when we repent we should be also thinking yeah, that God loves us everyone knows that uh, someone that is lost god, god loves you <laughs> exactly as you are right but i think that there is
0: missing something okay.
1: there's something enormous god missing right and the only way is to repent
2: right so how much can we to really believe that
1: that's right well we have to believe it with all of our heart and 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 yet you know it's interesting tomorrow is the fourth sunday of lent and in the again in the eastern rites they also celebrate it as a commemoration of saint john kamikus who is probably the greatest spiritual writer in the the spiritual tradition. And it's not an exaggeration in terms of one who uh, really knew what was going on within the mind and the heart, you know, he, you know, entered into this personal training was in the desert for 40 years and then eventually was made abbot of the monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so he's seen as another Moses, in fact, because he writes this book called the ladder of divine ascent that has been the staple of spiritual direction and spiritual healing since 600s 500s and uh but i I read a story about it today where a a young man was making a pilgrimage to greece and he came in contact with a priest and he said you know the, the western western christians make christianity seem so easy and he says it's because they've never heard of saint john and so the person sort of plays along knowing that there are a lot of saints named john and says to him, well, who who do you mean? You mean St. John the Baptist or St. John Chrysostom? And he said, no, that's St. John of the the ladder. That, uh, you know, here we have someone who is this doctor of souls, who's completely unknown by Christians. There was an anthropologist who did a study in Romania of remaining households that were households of faith, they had 95% of them had two books in the home, the Bible and the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. It was one of the first books published here in the new world, that it was the first spiritual book that came over on one of the boats, translated in into Spanish because of its, its great value. And yet nobody in the West knows about them you know I've gone to monasteries to talk about them and nobody knows about John Climacus or has not or they've heard of him but haven't read him and yet here he is sort of like uh, a Moses who Moses brings down the law to guide the people Saint John Climacus gives us this spiritual work that is really the the fruit of this long labor and he's completely ignored So a huge part of this for us uh, is uh, resting in the grace of God, a restoring of our relationship with him and making Christ not just an abstract notion in people's mind, but a real person and leading people to this encounter with him. The best thing that we could do, to be honest with you, is to bring a person to mass or bring them to adoration. They might not know what the heck is going on, but the reality of it is that Christ is present in this extraordinary way. And at Adoration, we've had tons of people who come in who aren't Catholic at all, and they walk into that chapel when we have the Eucharist exposed, and they know that there's a powerful presence there, and they experience it. And so, you know, we would do well first to bring people to this encounter w- with Christ, to bring them to see Christ. You remember when the Greeks come and they ask which of the apostles was it? Philip. They ask him, we, it's right at the, the time of Christ's passion, right before his passion. They, they come and they, they've heard of him. And they say, we want to, to see Jesus. And they come to Philip because Philip is a Greek name. And they think, well, we'll probably get a, a helping hand from this guy. And they ask, you know, can you take us to see Jesus? And that's what he he does. He takes them to see Jesus. So this is what we need to do initially, I think, for people. But I think part of the renewal of our faith and the renewal of the faith within the church is our immersion in the ascetical life. And some of the groups i have said this repeatedly, that there's a saint that says that any renewal in the church in times of great upheaval always begins with the Desert Fathers. Because in reality, they are like icons of living icons of the gospel. They were so immersed. Their spiritual reading was the gospel. They were so immersed in their relationship with Christ, so given over to him, so fully given over to him, that they embodied this reality in a very powerful way. And this is what we need in our own generation. We need not brilliant individuals so much although certainly powerful intellect can be a gift from God and be helpful but what we need in our day are saints we need those who embody Christ in this very powerful way and whom the spirit of Christ is is really active and so they have an encounter with Christ in and through the individual like individuals like Mother Teresa you know when they came when people came into contact with her It was like they were coming into contact with Christ. There was the joyfulness of the kingdom there. Even though she was struggling internally with great darkness in her spiritual life, she still embodied the joy of the kingdom in this very powerful way. And so it's not going to be through having another program, a lecture, a group, that a transformation takes place in the church. It's going to take place through personal conversion, repentance, a turning towards Christ and allowing that transformation to take place. There's no easy way to that, that, uh, easy way to do it. And that's why that that old monk said, Christians in the East make Christianity look easy. And that's part of our, our problem because it becomes unattractive at that point. If there's nothing there that challenges the human heart, speaks to the human heart on a very deep level, who's going to be attracted to it? You know, most people, if they come to church, most young people think it's boring. But do you think it's because of the quality of the liturgy or the preaching? No, it's because they're seeing nothing there that speaks to the mind and the heart. Nothing that is as powerful as all the stuff in the culture that is constantly coming at them. We should have an absolute confidence in the power of God's grace to speak to the human heart that it is more powerful than anything else, but we never place our trust in that. We're always trying to find ways to entertain, to engage, to advertise. You know, if we just have this great flyer, we'll draw all these people to a group, and it doesn't, doesn't happen. Or if we use the latest technology, you know, that somehow we'll be able to speak to the people of our generation. We would be better off going extremely low tech, but becoming, you know, focused on becoming saints of God, of living the gospel. I see a hand doing this. Do you have a question? Uh, actually, a, a comment
0: uh, mm-hmm. regarding the technology, the media. Mm-hmm. And that may just be because, you know, I'm, very, uh, I'm a very visual person. Mm-hmm. Actually, in the past, I didn't want to watch any before my uh, and break, I, I didn't want to watch any programs on the spiritual life because they just look so smart. And um, now that you know, they have uh, they have improved. They they actually you know visually on par with uh, uh, other things that we that uh, we see in the mainstream media. Um, now this. Uh, I couldn't mainstream media in the meantime, but when I was in the in-between stage, yeah. that actually helped me to take the Christian and Catholic programs seriously. So I do actually find it, you know, visual beauty. And actually, you know, I was reminded today that God is beauty. That's one of the ways that he draws us, draws us in. So I did want to make the comment that, you know, uh, the beauty and advancement of, uh, media, for example, is very important. Right?
1: Yeah, I use it all the time. You know, I do all these groups on Zoom, you know, and it's great. You know, the, the last, uh, was it the Climacus group? We, we had somebody from Japan participating. And who would have ever thought that would be possible? You know, and uh, so it's an extraordinary thing and great things can be done with it. But, and I'll say that, and it's a strong but, that it's nothing in comparison to a gentle and tender touch of someone who's in deep pain and who's isolated. And where someone steps out of themselves and engages that person with tenderness and love and seeks to find out what's going on in their life and or supports them in times of struggle and uh, you know seeks to lift them up and so as much as we make of all these things and what we can do through them now, I agree with you that they're, we don't need to demonize them. They can be a great help to us, but they, they still are nothing in comparison to the reality of Christ's love acting in and through one person, engaging another. I mean, again, when we go back to somebody closer on time, Mother Teresa, again, you know, think of it, all these people who are lying in the gut are dying and she's taking them in. And, you know, there was, they did a documentary on her. I think it was back in the seventies. I don't know if we can even, if you have access to it, can get access to it anymore. But there's this one scene where this little young boy in a bed, you know, you know, like a skeleton, you know, half starved and dying. And she was there with him and she was just sort of robbing his chest like this with a real gentleness. And just seeing it would make you weep because of the, of the depth of the love there. You know, that w- what she saw in that child and what she was doing for that child is something far more than we could ever do in teaching the faith, you know, through whatever technology that we might have, you know. And I think this is what we, we need to, to realize because we're, we're relying on those things more and more and seeing them as essential. And if we're lacking them, that somehow it's preventing us from spreading the gospel. Well, the only thing that prevents us from spreading the gospel is ourselves, our own lack of, of love. And if we engage one person, you know, it can have this enormous effect that we might never see. But in terms of the fruit that that bears in their life and in the life of others that they touch, it's the most powerful thing in the world. Think about how Christianity itself began, the small little band of nobodies and, and yet how quickly it spread. Do you have a question? <laughs> She'll always take them to our evaluation, and after it, she said it's always like they always are a lot more calm. And I like really do that because during my hour, I just feel so much peace in my voice. So I became so small. That's right. If you think about. It you know god made himself you know came to us in the mo- most non threatening way that we could imagine a little host you know so vulnerable but completely non threatening and yet present to us in such a radical way and yet we often fear to do the very thing that you said which is simply to invite people to, to come and see you know even if they're is a resistance to it or no knowledge of it whatsoever. It doesn't mean that it won't have an impact. You know, what we see and experience, another person come to experience very quickly by the movement of God's grace in their life. So we don't have to be constantly in fisticuffs with people arguing with them about, you know, various things, points of theology. In fact, that does very, very little. I want to go back to the text because we're we're pushing the time a little bit, and I just don't want to keep some of the beautiful things from you here. The commandments in the gospel, while easy, appear difficult for human consciousness. Having fallen out of sync with life and harmony is clouded. For example, people consider the gospel commandment to love, friend, and enemy alike to be difficult. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. See that no limits to good are imposed upon man in this commandment, one given to those who wish to rise above both their own and mankind's selfishness, to be healed and to depart from a state of sin. Let us try to list those who have caused us some annoyance or insult, who have dealt with us poorly or spoken ill of us. In other words, let us recall those who are not to our liking and forgive each one of them. Let us sincerely pray for these souls. Let us drive out any grudge or irritation we bear them and wish them well. Given the opportunity, let us say something nice about them to others at every opportunity, let us help them. Thus, as we will see for ourselves, fulfilling the commandment of love will engender a joyous feeling of spiritual freedom and profound peace. Many internal difficulties will depart from us for we will have fulfilled the the Christ's words, believe in God and give give him heed. The power of good will rejoice within us Even if we do not immediately notice this peace within ourselves, it will certainly come to us as a reflection of our charity. So on an intellectual level, and sometimes even on the level where we're resisting the truth of what is being revealed to us in Christ, we will hold back because we will think this is impossible. I think when we hear, it's always surprising to me that I could read the gospel and people aren't sort of freaking out in the chapel because we've sort of gotten used to saying, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, even when he's saying something like, do not resist one who is evil. and Because none of us believe that. None of us act upon it in, in reality or very rarely. And so perhaps none of us come to experience something of the freedom And the joy that the author is speaking of here is in our embrace of the commands of the Lord, trusting in the truth of them, allowing that truth to become embodied within us that transforms us from within. And we begin to experience the very life of the kingdom within us. It's joy. It's not something we produce. It's by allowing ourselves to, by the grace of God, to 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 embrace what he teaches us, even in the smallest way, the author is saying here, first within the mind, to try to let go of certain thoughts about another, who really irritates the heck out of us, you know, to try to move away to something more positive, and then to take another step at another point, to speak well of the person to to another, and then trying to do something good, good for them. That might take us a long time to get there, but nonetheless what the author is saying here is that we will inevitably experience the fruit of it because it's not something that we are producing ourselves or just with our own hands. It's what God's grace is doing within our hearts. Part of it is the fruit of our obedience to his commandments, our trust in his commandments. And, you know, we keep pressing back to, to interpret the gospel in accord with our own limited judgment. And, you know, we're always telling us it's impossible, it can't be, it's hyperbole. Rather than allowing ourselves to be drawn into something that is more than what human judgment or reason tells us. Allowing ourselves to be drawn into the godly life. And so oftentimes we have to overcome a profound resistance both spiritually and psychologically within us, even to consider what Christ teaches. And that resistance, in my mind, has to be so strong at this point that we can hear it and not respond to it by, you know, being shaken by it. You know, that we can walk out of mass without feeling, you know, that our our life and our view of life has been turned upside down. You know, either we aren't listening to the gospel or the one who's preaching it is really failing miserably. Because we aren't hearing the revolutionary Nature of it anymore. Yeah. One of the things that's helped me with the very challenging Mm -hmm. aspects of Mm Jesus' command to
0: love our neighbor Mm -hmm. um, is to, within that same context, pray for those who persecute us. Mm -hmm. So if we pray for those we find difficult to love, especially those who have mistreated us or done something to us, I find that when we see them again, Mm -hmm. there's been a shift Mm -hmm. and we. We actually
1: can't help but love them. We actually can't help but love those whom we are praying, even if we don't necessarily agree with things they do or like them. We can't help but love them. Right. To pray to pray for another is a profound act of love and of faith. You know, it's to take Christ at His word, and so to to pray for them is asking God to bless them, and so. If we can do that in in many ways, it's an extraordinary thing. It's already an extraordinary step. Well, I, I don't think we have necessarily the power to forgive ourselves,
0: but if we have the willingness, God does the rest. Yeah, you know he'll, I mean? he'll
1: provide the grace. I think there is a human element there. Just willing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. To we have to will it. Willing to forgive, yeah. I don't know how necessarily. But I'm well, part of and it God is. Does He's created us as free beings. I mean, that's why, you know, there is a kind of synergy here. We have to respond to the grace that God has given us. So let's try to wrap up with, at least with the reading here. That a person is kind, honest, and generous always seems miraculous. Yes, it is a miracle, and a miracle far greater than moving a mountain. Something greater than a mountain is being moved, human selfishness. So it does seem surprising to us at times when somebody actually treats us kindly. Boy, you know, that person was great you know, when you know, we're treated with you know, a modicum of respect in our day, because we, I think we've come to expect something quite opposite from others, you know, that they'll be cruel or hurtful or spiteful in some way. Such is the effect on men of our faith in God, our trust in the Lord, our repentance before Christ, When one who hates becomes one who loves, when a liar becomes truthful, when a vain person becomes modest, it is truly a miracle. Charity emanating from us first of all liberates us from our own evil. It opens within us the doors and windows through which flows the pure air of heaven. This is the rebirth born of repentance. This is important because You know, we're not just talking about natural virtues here or natural qualities that we we have as human beings. That somehow, you know, being a good person is what is being talked about in the gospel. You know, what we're called to be is Christ for one another. We're not just called to be good people, but we're called to love in a godly way and love in accord with the mind of Christ. And so that's why he's saying here, it's a miraculous thing for a liar to suddenly become truthful or for someone who's filled with hate and enmity to become gentle, you know, that this is the action of God's grace within them and that they're rising above the limitations of, of their humanity to be able to give themselves in love that in a way that is simply not possible by by human will alone it's a graced moment in other words in repentance we see the operation not of natural forces but of supernatural grace-filled ones and only one who believes in the light can take into himself true love according to biological law men engage only in a struggle for survival but according to the law of the spirit the battle is for the resurrection of the world A spiritual battle which conquers selfishness, spiritual death. The Christ calls us to overcome our evil will and animal nature, to become human in the full spiritual sense of the term. The human soul is immeasurably greater than matter. As the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens strengthens me. Such great, marvelous words. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Through the faith granted us we are called to be centered internally, mentally, not on our little selfish personality, but on the power of the living God, the true Christ Jesus who dwells within us. So it's elevating our sense of what it is to be a human being. And this is part of what Christ came to reveal to us, what how we are to live our lives and see ourselves as as human beings, you know, that we have been created in the image and likeness of God. And we're destined to share in that eternal life and love. And again, not in some distant future, but now in the present moment, now is the moment of salvation. And so our repentance is this turning to God that allows this action of grace, the supernatural grace within us to elevate our capacity to love And so we have to get away from viewing Christianity as a kind of self-help mechanism, you know, of protecting us from fear and anxiety and, you know, or, you know, just, you know, making us, again, good people and move to see it as it really is, a participation in the life of the triune God. We often will shrink it down to our level where it's comfortable and manageable. We want a God that we can feel comfortable around, rather than what the scriptures tell us, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, because all all of a sudden, our sense of security in ourselves, our own little personality, as the author puts it here, shatters, all that breaks apart until the the true self begins to emerge, our our true self in Christ our true identity in him. Again, there there can be a pretty pretty powerful part within us that, that resist allowing that to happen. The creator and father who brought us into being granted to our souls, the freedom to make a free moral choice, to turn to him and repent of our sins, which constitute a betrayal of God's truth. Yes, man is sometimes faithful to God, even if we do not frankly renounce God, We sometimes obliquely become betrayers of Christ, of his love and truth. Let us all repent of that. Let us reflect upon how imperfect is our consciousness and let us repent before God. Through repentance, the pure path to God is opened. Moreover, let us not tarry for no one knows when his final hour will come. There is nothing more important and more needed than repentance and God's saving forgiveness. So the line that struck out to me here is how imperfect is our our consciousness, that we are often unaware of the deeper levels of what is going on within us. As the author says here, there can be all these ways where we might not explicitly renounce Christ, But in all these subtle ways, in the way that we're living our life, acting, the way that we're treating others, that we are are betraying Christ or we're betraying the truth of the gospel. And it's this repentance, our turning towards he who is truth, that sharpens the vision of that within us. It sensitizes our conscience, but also I think overall our consciousness as a whole. We can become much more aware of what's going on around us and in the life of others and so i hope this helps you know in the sense of of moving repentance to something that we would be praying for and that we would be seeking to foster at every single moment of our life and that it is as the author tells us at the end here this is the most important thing this is our life this is the, the way that we view others in the way that we view god and so In terms of how we live our life, the first thing that is on our mind in the morning should be how how it is that we turn toward God in order to listen to him on a deeper level, to embrace his will, to seek to please him, and also to embrace our, our true identity in him. I think most of us, you know, we can get caught up in the flow of life, even as a priest. You know, you put on this identity, and believe me, it's A complex and very uh, strong identity. And it has all this meaning for different people you, you take on and that they project onto you and you receive it and you project back out onto them. Because the moment you put on that collar, you take on this identity, the church, God, Christ, you know, and all that is good and bad about that in terms of the person's experience. And so to step away from you know, this kind of identity that we often will create for ourselves, this little personality, again, that the author says, and to live this genuine life that is rooted in Christ uh, is really the goal, uh, uh, part of the goal of repentance, to live truthfully. You know, Not simply to, to put on an identity like we put on our clothes every morning and with as much variance. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be this today, so at least wearing black every day sort of makes that removes that <laughs> a little bit, but just a little bit. Yes.
0: From the First thing about on the first page about how constantly, um, and I don't have any doubt. That. I often think with um, a second, and then how he went to confession weekly. And you, uh, you would look at him and you could see the love of God emanating from right. the TV. You know, and think, how does he, what he say confession? And then you think about yourself, <laughs> and, I, and I can't even think of my, I can't even, I can't even not even recognize many times since that I, i um, um, obviously. Um, and part of that is the not keeping it common Of quite But but just knowing those things, how does one how do you even get to that point of clarity? I mean, is it do you start doing weekly do do confession? I mean you guys are great because you're available <laughs> <laughs> every day. What what kind of a practice do we try to implement in order to facilitate reasonably, but with some dedication, trying to allow all this to occur?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we have to recreate the wheel, as it were. I think we look to the spiritual tradition and what the church herself teaches us. And even the example that you brought up of Pope John Paul, St. John Paul II, I think it was actually daily at times that he went to confession. And part of that was, you know, I think his sense of the role that he played within the church and, you know, that there needed to be this kind of radical sensitivity that he had to what was going on within his own heart, as well as to receive the grace of the sacrament, the healing that he would need in order to fulfill what God had called him to. And so St. Philip Neri, our founder, I think, uh, so many saints before him and after uh, began to, to seek to help bring about healing within the church by making himself accessible in the confessional it's the sacrament of healing for us and so he would spend he would take the latest mass in the day you know so that he could hear confessions all the way up to the time of hearing so he would take the noon mass and hear confessions until noon but he would make himself accessible day and night for people to come to confession to him. And he had some people who would go to him daily, some a couple times a week, some weekly, depending upon their need. And I think he saw that, you know, Rome was in a state like the churches today, Rome in his time. It was the Counter reformation. So right after the reformation, great corruption within the church, priests weren't living the priestly life, people, you know, weren't really practicing their faith at all. And so he began with what God has given us and what is most powerful in bringing about that healing. He made himself accessible in a way that it wasn't relying upon his personality, even though it was strong, but relying upon the grace that comes to us through the sacrament. He knew the power of that himself and what it brought to others. And so he would spend hours in there. And prior to that, it was through this deep and intense prayer. You know, he didn't become a priest until age 35. And spent the first ten years in Rome as a young man, all night long in the catacombs praying, uh, because he knew, you know, that what was important is that he followed the guidance of the Spirit. He had no s- sense of becoming a priest until he was ordered to by his spiritual director under obedience. Precisely that he could serve the, all the people that were coming to him in a greater way, that he could hear confession and say Mass for them.
0: So you're saying good.
1: Well, I'm saying frequent confession and frequent reception of the Holy Eucharist is always going to be the most powerful resource for us because it's what Christ has given to us. Those are both healing sacraments for us. And so the way that we are healed of our sin, as well as have the grace to grow in virtue, is to put on Christ. You know, our overcoming vice is not simply our climbing up a mountain by self-will you know, to the point that we become virtuous in our own eyes. You know, the opposite of vice is Christ living within us, where his strength becomes our strength, his virtue becomes our virtue. And so the way that that takes place is by receiving him. You know, he gives himself to us in and through the sacraments, and we consummate that relationship, we become one with him in this radical way in the Holy Eucharist. The heavenly bridegroom Gives himself to his bride, the Church, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's an act of consummation, and we treat it like it's fast food. You know that we go up and take this season, you know, regardless of our state or without, regardless of our understanding, where it should be the most profound moment in our life. We're entering into the deepest intimacy with the other, with God. So, what more? What, what more powerful? thing could we do than what Christ himself has given us. As well as other things, you know, the immersion in the scriptures, you know, that we would know his teaching, that we would in- in- interiorize it and seek to live it. But it begins with us in the sacraments. First over here and then... okay
0: Father, thank you for the time. I'm glad. Thank you. Um... Going off of a question. question. So, do you think that um, um, a more frequent uh, examination of context like that might the learned a little bit of sort of sometimes to be like aware or feel you know, like how this is the aware understand mm-hmm. um, right. um to, to, to get to this point of the to what we're experiencing right? Right. or even like knowing whatever we're about to be like attacking that mm-hmm. like knowing right. actually knowing um, like in the heads of them bringing it mm-hmm. to our own experience right. um, do you think that, that maybe, like, like
1: thing yeah so- definitely and the church calls us to do that are you familiar with the divine office you know, the, the hours, the, the liturgy, the hours, right? So a part of Compline, night prayer always begins with an examination of conscience. And so part of the mind of the church is that we would be doing this on a regular basis, whether it's using something like the the the, the examine through Ignatius, or there's uh sometimes people do it with the Ten Commandments, or we could do it with the Beatitudes. In the way of uh, way of the pilgrim, there's one of the most beautiful examinations of conscience that exists there, too. So to foster that on a daily basis, absolutely. And uh, I think part of it begins to manifest itself clearly simply through the depth of prayer, you know, in, in the silence of prayer, saving sitting before the Blessed Sacrament. Often what is revealed to us, you know, is certainly the love and the mercy of God, but also the places that we need. To be healed so you know cardinal sarah wrote that book the power of silence and i've mentioned before that i think that book was prophetic you know in a, a day and age when there is so much noise within the world what we need to be doing is not adding to the noise but stepping back into the silence and listening to god first of all as he speaks within our own heart and what he's telling us where we need to be healed where we need to be living the gospel more fully so yes, great question. You know, and there are many different ways I think that we could do that, and, and foster it. And frequent confession is one of them too. I think the more we go to confession, the better we we become at it. There, there, our participation in it can grow. The depth of our reflection. And our ability to see the more subtle things going on within our heart begins to grow, too, partly because of the grace that we receive through the sacrament. But I think this familiar, this frequency of examining our heart as we prepare for the sacrament itself. That was actually my question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of people use the Ten Commandments, but find there, too, that it doesn't speak to them in the personal way. And I think that's the reason I recommend that one from the way of the pilgrim because it is as if Christ is speaking to the soul and you can find many different things like this. Uh, There's a great, uh, these these writers, uh, there's a book called Divine Intimacy. Are people familiar with that? And part of those writings are put in colloquy form where Christ is speaking directly to the soul it's sort of like this dialogue back and forth. And it was kind of spiritual practice in writing that was very deep, personal, and intimate. And there are some writers that are, were great at it. And divine intimacy is very, very Carmelite in its spirituality. But it's a beautiful work. There's a, a priest who wrote it early in the early 20th century named Father Gaston Courtois. And he writes in this same format, too. This is just exquisite and uh, perfect for something like adoration, where it's it draws us in to listen and engage Christ in a very deep way. There's a newer book out called Insinu Jesu that you've probably seen at the front desk, a priest journal of, at prayer. And it's the same thing. It's this kind of internal dialogue with Christ. And I, I think as we engage in that, we you know, become much more aware of how we are how we are entering into that relationship and how well we are doing it or not.
0: One you have in the public kids prayer book you got over there is really good one. It's more fleshed out. It's okay. not like here are ten ways of so like sitting against this one commandment. It's like much mm-hmm. more um, you know, from the heart, much more that approach of like healing and um yeah. yeah.
1: I'm so sorry, everybody, I just realized what time it is. And it's almost nine o'clock. So the group almost went two hours. Uh, So I apologize about that. I I usually try to keep things on time, but it never seems to work out that way. But uh, this is a beautiful reading. And so I'd encourage you to just go back over it again. It's, In fact, it's probably one of the most beautiful things I've read on repentance just because of the clarity of it. So this would be a role keeper you know, put it away in a file for yourself and to go back to it, okay? So when we close with a prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to
1: God.